church. Next weekend is the men's retreat at Arrowhead Bible Camp, and then following that, as you saw, is the junior high retreat. We're excited to be hosting that. There's a lot happening. Be praying about those events. Get involved in those events. This is a great way to connect with people. Sometimes I hear this once in a while. Someone will be like, yeah, I go to Maranatha. I really don't connect with people. Well, do something about that. Um, reach out and start talking to people. Have a donut with someone you've never met before and ask them why they chose that donut or something like that. I don't know. Find ways to connect. It's pretty easy to do that. <clears throat> I'm excited about today. We are again in our study in the book of Psalms as we're going through Christ in the Old Testament. And as I've encouraged you, get a notebook as we go through each of these Sundays looking at Christ in the Old Testament. There's some beautiful aspects about this and again all of our notes are online if you've missed a sunday please catch up where we're at and again this study in psalms will lead us to easter rightfully so and we're doing this series here in psalms with the theme christ is worthy to be praised christ is worthy to be praised and we may think why is christ worthy to be praised well what I've done is I've taken a look at two aspects in the book of Psalms. There's these messianic chapters, and there's two kind of themes. There's one which is the royal theme, which we're dealing with these couple Sundays. Christ is this royal one. He's this messianic royal son, royal king, the anointed one. He is the Messiah, the Christ. But then we're going to conclude our series looking at the suffering leading up to, obviously, Good Friday and then Easter. There are many of the Messianic passages that most people look at when they look at the Psalms of this royal Messiah. And we celebrate that, but we sometimes don't realize that many of the Psalms speak of His suffering. And we'll be doing that starting next week as we go through this series. Christ is worthy to be praised. And we'll conclude with the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And and that is the focus. And everything hinges upon that. We see that in Scripture. And we'll see that as we go through our study. The resurrection is that key point of Christianity that's so needed. It gives us life. It brings us life. And since Jesus raised from the dead, it's a verification of who He is and who He claimed to be. And He must be Lord and Savior and must be worshipped. That is why we celebrate Christ. Because of the cross event, Christ is worthy to be praised amen he's worthy to be praised so today we're looking at another of the royal psalms that we've been looking at here these royal passages and i was thinking you know why are we looking at these royal passages and why are these important for us today they help us see the greater exaltation of christ that begins with his resurrection from the dead and his ascension, and then it doesn't end there. It culminates in the last days when he is this king of kings, and he reigns in the future and final victory of God. So these royal psalms have this eschatological, now that's a big name there, or a big word there. These royal psalms have this final victory of the end of the days day's theme to it this this tone of these royal psalms have this tone of not just that he is king he's going to come but this end of the days kind of tone this eschatological tone 
that he is this royal one. He's victorious. He's the king. He's the son. And he's going to reign over all. And the saints of the, New Te- of the Old Testament, they looked forward to this end of the days theme. And that was kind of their, their hope that this Messiah would come and victory would come. And the Psalms gives us insight to these reasons why Christ is worthy to be praised. So I want you to take some notes here. So get that pencil in front of you. Now you got your bulletin. There's a spot for notes. This is important on how we read the Psalms looking at Christ in the Old Testament. So there are three different ways that we are to look at these passages as we look at these royal messianic-themed passages. First of all, we are to read them as how the first readers understood them in their original context. Very important. And we've done that. Remember the first sermon. We looked at a passage where I said, okay, here's the blue letter. We kind of highlighted how David fulfilled this and and the royal Davidic throne would fill this in a human level. Yet David could never live up to what was spoken in these passages. He could never meet the standards that he talked about that was written about the Davidic throne. No human could. And then, these were written before the exile, and the exile comes, and the question is, will the Davidic throne ever come back? Will it be revived? And as we'll see through the prophets, and at the end of the Old Testament period, no, it didn't. But, oh yes, it did through Christ. Secondly, we are to see them as the New Testament understands them. Applying it to Jesus and the cross event. Gratefully, we're on this side of the Old Testament where we get to see through the New Testament lens and go, oh, this is how this was fulfilled through what Christ did through the cross event. The Messianic rule was reestablished even though they thought, man, the Davidic kingdom, it's not going to work out. We come back from the exile. We've been released. We're back in Jerusalem. But it's not going to work out. Oh, yes, it did in Christ. It was reestablished at His first coming. Through the lens of the New Testament, we see when we saw that Psalm chapter 2, Psalm 110 last week, they ultimately speak of Jesus. But there's a third aspect. Lastly, see them both as the old and the new understood them when applied to the Messiah at the final days and His victorious reign over all things. This isn't just about the cross event. It's also speaking about this glorious eschatological time period where Christ will then reign and rule over all things in a victorious way. The final fulfillment of these royal passages is about the reign of Jesus at the end of the time leading to the eternal glory of the new heavens and the new earth where we will be with Him forever. And we will see all three of these aspects this morning as we study. Psalm chapter 2, our first passage we looked at, and then Psalm 110, our messianic psalms that predict that God will install His anointed Son, His King, His Lord. Psalm 2, Christ is the royal Son. And Psalm 110, 
Christ is this priestly king. And today we're talking about victory. Victory is our theme today. And that's how we ended the topic last week, do you remember? Remember the last part of the passage, it said, He will be victorious. And there's victory found in Jesus, as we will see today in Psalm chapter 18. So that's what we're going to do. So let's pray before we dive into Scripture. Again, it's important to pray before you read Scripture because it's so easy to be distracted. It's so easy to think of other things. And we want to be guided by the Spirit for what's about to come. Because if you don't know, there's an epidemic out there. You know what it is? It's called sin. It's not what the news is talking about. Yeah, that's important to talk about. But not as crazy as sometimes the news makes it to be. The great epidemic is sin. And today we get to dive into something where we see the remedy. Jesus, the royal one, brought victory. Amen? So let's pray. Father, we ask this morning that you do that surgery in our lives. As someone said, sin, a cancer fatal to our souls. We need the remedy. And it's something only you provide. And you foretold of it. You spoke of it through the Psalms. The beauty of fulfillment in the cross event. And this anticipation that someday we will be freed from the presence of sin. Praise God Almighty. So do your work in our hearts. Guide us through Scripture today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen? Well, we've been going through this series looking at Christ in the Old Testament, and many times I've showed you a picture of how this is kind of laid out in Scripture. We're going through it in, a, in our Bibles, book at a time, as our Bible has laid it out. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges. But take a look at this. Again, if you recall, there's the timeline where only 11 books cover the storyline, the chronology of the Old Testament, and the other books fit in within there. And if you take a look at this, we see that Right now, where we're at, today's passage, even though we already did Ezra, we already did Nehemiah, we are now at this point in Scripture, and notice this covers a couple books of the Bible. Notice it covers 2 Samuel. And below that, you see also it covers 1 Chronicles. Remember, it goes 1 and 2 Samuel, 1 and 2 Kings, and then when you read through the Bible, you realize when you read 1 and 2 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles, you realize, wait a second, these stories were told before. But what they're doing is, the latter part there in Chronicles, they're saying the good part. Look, even though in Samuel, even though in Kings, they failed a lot, look at God's hand. He was faithful. And they're retelling the stories. And we're also covering Psalms. So we're looking at three books, three chapters, at the same time period, which seems a little odd, but this chart will help you. Here's another example. There's this chronological Bible, I've, I've pulled it out before, showed it to you, where this Bible goes through and places each of the passages in the story timeline. Here's a picture, it goes Psalm 17 and then Psalm 19. I'm like, wait, this Bible just skipped out Psalm 18. But Psalm 18 fits in a different time spot 
than the order of it in the book of Psalms. So here's a big picture. Let me give you this next slide here. What I've done is I've kind of mapped it out in how this looks, okay? This is kind of overwhelming maybe at first, but this will help you realize where we're at. So the first part, here's the context of the parallel passages. 1 Chronicles 21-27 through 27 speaks about David takes this, this census, okay? He does this census, but this is also covered in 2 Samuel 24. So those two are very parallel. And within that time period that he does this, all of this fills within this, okay? So we got 2 Samuel 15 through 16. David's son and the nations rebel, and he's kind of weary about this. People are rebelling against him. They want to take his life. And then 17 comes. And notice how 17, 2 Samuel 17, fills in with Psalm chapter 3. In Psalm 63. So during this time period of Psalm, or 2 Samuel 17, where David escapes from those who want to kill him, he writes certain things. And we have those, Psalm 3. Psalm 63. Here, he puts his trust in the Lord. And then we go to 2 Samuel 18-23. through 23. These are the latter years of David's reign. What happens during this time. And then 2 Samuel 22. David's song of praise for deliverance. So this is where we're at today. So here, at the end kind of of his reign, he talks about, he begins to sing, and writes a song about, look, during my reign, this is what the Lord has done. He has saved me. And he uses these beautiful words about God's great work, might, and power in his salvation. And also then, this is parallel to Psalm 18. Here's this Davidic psalm of praise for deliverance. And if we continue with 2 Samuel, we see then 2 Samuel 24, then he takes the senses. So hopefully this kind of picture shows you how it all fits in how it's all connected because at first you might read this and go this doesn't make sense this doesn't follow the way we read and write stories so before we turn to psalm 18 today let's look in the new testament to luke chapter 1 so take your bibles and turn to luke chapter 1 Luke, the book of Luke is is wonderful. It it lays out this beautiful picture of Christ. And it begins talking about two important births that are about to happen. One is John the Baptist and one is Jesus Christ. They kind of look at the parents of this time period, of this birth. And one of them is Zechariah. Now, in the Bible, there are 30 different people that have the name Zechariah. Just kind of like in this area, you find a lot of Carlsons around here, right? A lot of Petersons around here. Okay, this is a popular name. Zechariah is a popular name in the Bible. This particular Zechariah is a priest. He's an older man. He has a wife. And they have no kids. So he's been serving as a priest. No kids. And then one day, as he's serving in the temple, an angel comes to him and says, guess what? You're going to have a son. And Zachariah's thinking, all right, angel, 
I don't know if you know this, but I'm really old. And my wife is really old. This probably isn't going to happen. I'm an old man. And he goes, this is not going to happen. And the angel turns to him in his disbelief in verse 20. And now you will be silent and not be able to speak until the day this happens because you have not believed my words which will come true at their appointed time. So Zechariah has this unbelief. Angel, this is not going to happen. And the angel's like, hey, because you had unbelief, now your tongue will not work the way it's supposed to work when you speak. So you're going to be silent for like nine months. So Zechariah is unable to talk until his son is born. So in this nine-month period, I'm not going to spend much time on this, but this is important. In this nine-month period, Zechariah, who doesn't speak, has much time to learn about the Lord and believe God at a deeper level. Listen to this, people. Sometimes we need to shut our mouth, turn off the comfort of noise, and just listen to God, right? Important thing to do. So this happens. Then Mary, the mother of Jesus, is also told, hey, you're going to have a child. And this all happens in chapter, the middle of chapter 1. Mary then responds with a song. It's beautiful. Then Zechariah's son is born. The son is born. John the Baptist is born. And then, after months of silence, it's almost like Zechariah's tongue gets loosed. And he begins to say something. Being silent, he then says, look at verse 67. His father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come to his people and redeemed them. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David as he said through his holy prophets long ago. Salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. So Zechariah, now after a long period of silence, a long period of meditating and thinking about the Lord, then realizes this is the time. And he gives a song of praise. Saying God is now sending this messianic redeemer. The time has come. The anticipation of the Old Testament Messiah has now come. And we see that at Luke's starting point of this book that he writes, we realize that he's describing Jesus as this victorious king. And this is taken from what Zechariah quotes in this is from Psalm 18 and also from 2 Samuel 22. So let's go to Psalm 18. So take your Bibles and go to Psalm 18. And if you recall from that chart, Psalm 18 is also David's period where he is in 2 Samuel 22. Psalm 18. This is often called a royal passage. A royal psalm. Giving thanksgiving. Many psalms have little introductions, and this one has one. This one's a bit lengthy compared to the other ones. For the director of music of David, the servant of the Lord, 
he sang to the Lord the words of this song when the Lord delivered him from the hands of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul, he said. Now remember, he was being pursued by his son, pursued by even his own people. And he was running away, hiding. And this is in that time period. Here we go. Listen to the first couple verses. I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock, my fortress, and my deliverer. My God is my rock in whom I take refuge. My shield and horn of my salvation. My stronghold. I call to the Lord who is worthy of praise. And I have been saved from my enemies. Those in the Old Testament, even those today, they turn to God and look to God for all the benefits that an earthly king could provide, but even greater than that. An earthly king would provide protection, provide providence over them, provide help through different matters, safety, security, peace. And they turn to God ultimately saying, God, give us that security, give us that peace. Give us that victory. And think of some of the words in there. He's my rock, my refuge, my deliverer, my shield, my horn of salvation. He is worthy. He has saved me. And the rest of Psalm 18 is filled with these beautiful words picturing the beauty of what God does. But it's important here to note this. In fact, I had a friend on Facebook getting a huge discussion. He does these podcasts and stuff, and he, he wrote something online, God is love, and it got into this big discussion because he, he talks to a lot of Christians and non-Christians, and, and people were all kind of adding their things and their thoughts. For us in the Western world, for us today, the two kind of main concepts of God is this. He's love, and He's peace. Rightfully so, He is that. God is love. First John chapter 4, God is love most famous verse that we know for God so loved the world that he gave his only son rightfully so God is love and God brings peace but it's interesting as I've studied the Old Testament the Old Testament that wouldn't be their first two words they would use to describe God in the Old Testament their main notion of God is twofold holy and victorious when you read the Old Testament, you realize those are the main words they would cling to. God is holy. Thus, we want to obey Him and worship Him through obedience. He's holy. Think of Isaiah chapter 6. Holy, holy, holy. But also, He's victorious. When you read through the Psalms, you realize David goes through a lot of stuff and some of the other writers write, they write, oh God, woe is me. But in the end, they usually end up saying, God, you will win. You're victorious. God is the one who would come down and terrify his enemies. Sometimes we read some of the Old Testament, we go, like, like look, at, look at the part of this that says, I call to the Lord who is worthy of praise. I have been saved from my enemies. Take the enemies, dash them upon the rocks, destroy them. For us today, we go, God is love. We, we can't say that. Well, God is holy and victorious. 
And the Old Testament writers would say that he would come down and destroy and terrify his enemies. And much of Psalm 18 has that feel. Today I encourage you, read the rest of Psalm 18. It's just, it's very like terrifying because the Lord will destroy the enemies of God. Remember that. Listen to this also. Psalm 68, verse 33. To him who rides across the highest heavens, the ancient heavens, who thunders with a mighty voice. They had this fear and trembling of God because he's victorious. Or turn to the first song ever written in Scripture, Exodus 15. Quickly turn there if you can. Remember the gospel story of the Old Testament is primarily found in Exodus 12 through 14, and it happens in chapter 14. They walk across dry land. The enemy is destroyed, defeated. That's the gospel story of the Old Testament. Then their first response is worship with song. Then Moses and the Israelites sang the song to the Lord. I will sing of the Lord, for he is highly exalted. The horse and its rider he has hurled into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. He is my God and I will praise Him. My Father's God and I will exalt Him. The Lord is a warrior. He's a warrior. He's one who defeats and destroys the enemy, terrifies the enemy. Again, it's it's not wrong to have this notion God is love, God is peace. Absolutely true, but he's also victorious and a warrior. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord, notice how it's Yahweh, is his name. And it goes on telling about the defeat of the enemy and the victory of God. So the phrase, let's go back to Psalm 18. The phrase we're looking at that is mentioned in Luke chapter 1 is here. Horn of salvation. He is the horn of salvation. So at first you hear this, you go, well, that, that sounds kind of weird. Horn of salvation. So let me give you a little bit of the Old Testament background. Why are they talking about horns? Now, i got a horn on my car. Beep, beep, you know. My, one of my daughters has a horn on their bike. Is this what this is about? Sometimes a horn was used in ceremonies as a musical instrument, yes, to make a sound, to let people know to prepare that something's coming. But that's not what it's talking about here. As a little kid, there's a certain show I love, and it was called Gunsmoke. Anybody like Gunsmoke? All right, some of, okay, some of you, yeah. I mean, I, James Arness, yeah, he was my man. And the pistols he had, oh, man, I was like, yeah, I want to be a Western cowboy someday. And I grew up thinking someday with a name like Cody, I'm going to be a cowboy with a pistol, a six-year-old. I mean, I, I love Gunsmoke. Seriously, anybody really like Gunsmoke? Okay, good, something awesome. Now you look at it, there's a lot of killing. And, oh, man, it was just great to me. But there's one thing that freaked me out. They would have sometimes a stampede. Take a look at this picture. At times, they would have these huge wild bulls running around. And I'm like, man, I like steaks and all. Trust me. But you see those horns? To be gored by one of them, I don't think I want to be a Western cowboy anymore, okay? That kind of freaked me out. 
I saw this and I was like, man, these wild cattle scared me. They had these huge horns that could gore you and I'd be crushed like a melon. So much for my six-shooter, right? It'd be passed on to my family. It scared me. Go to the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, the horns of an ox or the horns of an animal are used for protection and defeating opponents. A couple examples here in Scripture. Moses, in Deuteronomy 33, towards the end of his life, he begins to bless the different tribes. All the tribes, the 12 tribes, he begins to say different blessings upon them. Deuteronomy 33, verse 17, talks about one of the tribes. In majesty, he is like the firstborn bull. His horns are the horns of a wild ox. With them, he will gore the nations, even those at the end of the earth. So horns were spoken of power and might and destroying the enemy. Describing a king who saves in 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 10. Those who oppose the Lord will be broken. The Most High will thunder from heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to His king and exalt the horn of His anointed. There's this term horn. The horn of His anointed. Again, remember, the main notion of who God is and is describing God in the Old Testament is that He's holy and victorious. And this horn is an image, a metaphor, describing and depicting military skill. And often used in the house of David. Listen to Psalm 132, verse 17. Here I will make a horn grow for David. When I was a little kid, I read that thinking, what? David's going to have a horn grow out of his head. This doesn't make sense. Here I will make a horn grow for David and set a lamp up for my anointed one. So in the Old Testament, here it is, the horn is a symbol of royal power and royal victory. Whenever you see the word horn, it can be a couple things, but when it's in the royal passages, when it's talking about David and his throne, mainly it speaks of this aspect of Power and victory. Sometimes it's a musical instrument. Can't always apply it to all aspects of that, but this here we're dealing with this. At times it's a military term to describe God's power and might. And power flows through God's chosen servants, but God is the source of this power. God is the source of this victory. When used in this way, is you showing that God will bring intervention and deliverance for His people. Israel's enemies will be defeated. And He will save them from harm. Because He's the horn of salvation. He's the power and He will destroy them. So let's go back to Luke chapter 1. Take your Bibles and let's go back to Luke chapter 1. Zechariah. His tongue is bound up. He's unable to say anything. He's got a great time in his life to ponder the depth and beauty of God. And when his tongue is loosed, 
Zechariah's song, rightfully so, speaks of Christ, speaks of the Messiah, speaks of the Anointed One. Then he says, He has raised up a horn of salvation for us. When I looked at that, I read that a couple times thinking, He has raised up a horn of salvation for us. And I realize this. He's speaking in the past tense about an event that will come in the future. He's quoting Psalm 18. He's quoting 2 Samuel 22. He's talking about something in the past, but in reality, he's speaking of an event that is about to come. So this horn is reference to this Christ child, the Messiah, the Davidic Messiah, the Deliverer and Victor that is about to come. And the Christ that is spoken about is about to come. We're at Luke chapter 1, and He comes Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2 is a very famous passage to read during Christmas time. God raises up this horn. It shows that God is the one who's orchestrating. God is the one who's in control. He's the one who's got this plan of redemption. He's raising up, and ancient prophecies are now being fulfilled. This Davidic horn, this picture of strength, will do the work of God's deliverance in two ways. And the rest of his song describes this. I'm not going to read the rest of this. We don't have time for this. But in verses 71 through 74, this deliverance is political and for nations. It's delivering them from the political oppression but it's also a national deliverance that's coming. God who has descended to His people will deliver them from the political problems they're dealing with. This is the militaristic side of this horn of salvation. He's going to be this divine warrior that will free them from what they're dealing with right now. And this is an allusion to Psalm 106 verse 10 says this, He saved them from the hand of the foe. From the hand of the enemy, He has redeemed them. Again, God is victorious and He will save His people from their enemies. The Messiah's rule will be resisted. Remember Psalm chapter 2. Two weeks ago we talked about that. Why do the nations conspire against God? Why do they say, oh, let's get free from God? He's coming to free his people, from their enemies. Vindication will happen by the force of this horn of salvation, Christ, the Messiah. So it's speaking in political, in national deliverance. But secondly, it's also speaking of spiritual deliverance. Not just physical deliverance from things around them, but also spiritually And we see this in verses 75 through 79. God who's descended will not just free them from their enemies, but He'll bring spiritual freedom. Jesus is the expression of God's mercy and forgiveness of sins will finally come and freedom will be there. So this salvation is holistic in nature. 
a little side note, what happens, and this becomes a problem, when people preach only one type of those types of deliverance. Some will just say, well, and we call this liberation theology, go on to extreme, and sometimes I've seen this in South America when I've been down there. They preach, you know, God's main purpose of salvation is to free you from your oppressors, fight them, get rid of them, and you'll be free physically from them. And that's all they preach. They miss out on, dude, Christ has come to restore the relationship that's broken between you and God to give you freedom spiritually and forgiveness of sins. They're missing out. And I would say sometimes, if all you focus on is, hey, guess what? You're free from your sins. God's freed you. There's deliverance. I'm not downplaying it because we're evangelical Protestants. That's what we preach. But there's more to that. There's also this liberation that God has come. It's holistic. And we'll see this, and I'll describe this more because the prophets do this. The prophets share both aspects of that deliverance. God has and will conquer every evil, whether the oppression is spiritual or physical. He's come to bring freedom to His people. He is victorious. We got a glimpse earlier through the Psalms that Yahweh is this mighty and victorious warrior. Thus, Yahweh's Messiah is the one who reigns for Him. He's the one that will extend God's rule. He's the mighty, victorious warrior. This leads us to the title and conclusion of our message today. Christ is the royal, victorious one. Christ is the royal, victorious one. We've seen in the Bible that God is the one who fights for Israel. Exodus 14.14, make sure you got that one memorized. God is the one who fights for His people. He is the one who is strong. He is the one that gains victory over His enemies. At times He'll use human agents to do it, but all glory and praise be to God. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to Your name be all the glory. Amen? We ended last week with this topic, with the last words of Psalm 110. He will be victorious. He will be victorious. And there is victory in Jesus. But this victory is seen in two different time periods. This victory is seen in two aspects of time. The first one, His victory came during the arrival when the Messiah took on flesh at the first coming and was made and verified at the cross event. So this first victory, this first vindication came when He took on flesh and it became, God became man. And in obedience all the way to the cross. And all this was verified at the cross event. Here is where Christ brought us spiritual salvation. Take your Bibles and turn to the book of Romans, chapter 3. 
Christ has come to liberate us from our bondage to sin, from the penalty of death. God's wrath rightly deserved upon us has been absorbed by Christ. Romans chapter 3, starting with verse 21. Paul. Martin Luther, the great reformer, in his own Bible, in this little chapter, this little paragraph here said, the greatest part of the epistle, if not the whole of Scripture. Here's the summary. But now a righteousness from God, because look at people, right before this in chapter 3, chapter 2, and from 118 all the way to 320, we cannot do it. Our righteousness reeks. We can't do it. We have failed. The law was there, and it points out, guess what? You have failed. But now, a righteousness from God, apart from the law, has been made known to which the law and prophets testify. Guess what? The Old Testament law, the Old Testament prophets were testifying about this great righteousness from God who is Jesus. The Old Testament speaks of Christ. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. In verse 25, God presented Him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in His blood. He did this to demonstrate His justice because in His forbearance He left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate His justice at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Christ has come And in the cross event, we see the beauty that He's delivered us from our sin. And the judgment, we deserve death. He took upon Himself. Jesus is the horn of salvation. Through power and victory, He conquered both the grave at the crucifixion. He conquered sin. And He rose again so we could have life. And victory to all those who believe. And that's what we celebrate. The Easter event. But, this is not the only victory that Christ has come to give us. There's two different time periods. The first one is His first coming. The second coming will bring a full and final victory. Combating the spiritual with the political and social realms of salvation with the destruction of all the enemies of God. Boom, they are gone. Amen? Turn to Revelation 19. Again, when we read the Old Testament royal passages, we must read them as the original audience in that context understood it. But also, we are to read these passages as the New Testament saw the beauty of it through the lens of the cross and the resurrection But third, if you recall, we're to think of these last days, this vindication, this eschatological end of the days. Revelation 19, 
Let's look at verse 19. Then I saw the beasts and the kings of the earth and their enemies gathered together to make war against the rider on the horse and his enemy. Let me pause there. What's the scariest book of the Bible? It is not Revelation. Revelation is all about the sovereignty of God and the victory of God. It's the one where we go, woohoo, he wins. The book of Job, what's the book of Job about? It's not about suffering first. It's about the sovereignty of God over all things. Same with Revelation. Whoa, there's a war coming up. Oh, man. But the beast was captured with him, and the false prophet who had performed miraculous signs on his behalf with these signs deluded those who received the mark of the beast and worshipped the image. The two of them were thrown into the lake of fire of burning sulfur. Boom! You know what? It's not going to be a Steven Spielberg movie that lasts for six hours or Lord of the Rings where they're battling. When the enemy comes up, guess what God does? You are done! Praise God! He's the horn of salvation. He brings victory to us. And when this day comes, it is done. He is hurled into the sea. So at the second coming, Jesus is the horn of salvation. And in the last days, he will conquer sin and Satan and promises and eternal and everlasting reign. And that's why Revelation 21 is one of my favorite chapters to read. So what's the takeaway of all of this? What's the takeaway of this great theme and message in Scripture? It's not just in this passage we're reading, Psalm 18. It's not just only in Revelation. First of all, let's look at all around us. There's chaos all around. The world sometimes seems to be spinning out of control. Why do the nations prosper? Who's in control here? Who's in charge? Or in the Old Testament, why is the Davidic throne not victorious yet? Is God sovereign, really? Is He powerful? Absolutely yes, amen? Yes, He is. And Christ is that verification. So three things in closing I want you to think about. Number one, turn to Christ for true life and salvation. He is the strong Savior. He's come to save those who believe in Him. Turn to Christ for salvation. Without Him, you will get nowhere. In fact, without Christ, you will get eternal damnation. Turn to Christ. Secondly, take refuge in Christ, the horn of our, our salvation. He has the power to secure and protect His people. Oh, yes, He does. He has the power to secure and protect His people. Throughout all of Scripture, the Lord is always victorious. Turn to Him in your struggles. Turn to Him in your sickness. Turn to Him in your doubts. Turn to Him in your joy. He is the horn of salvation. He is the one who is victorious. Take refuge in Christ. And lastly, trust in the victory of Christ, the strength of my life. In the end, He will be victorious. My life is short. 
quick. It comes and goes. But in the end, I know this. He will be victorious. And when we read Revelation, we should just go, Praise God Almighty! The horn of salvation! He's victorious! Jesus brings the ultimate, final victory of the Lord. Through His birth, life, death, resurrection, and secondly, at His final coming. He will redeem His people, deliver them from all the evils of the world. He is victorious. Turn to Him. Take refuge in Him. And trust in Him. Let's pray. Father God, I thank You for this great salvation that You've given us. It is amazing how David and all his turmoils and all his suffering, fleeing from his enemies, wondering if he's going to die, saw your hand of deliverance. And in 2 Samuel 22, and also in Psalm 18, wrote about your great glory, might, power, and victory over the enemy, that you would be the horn of salvation. And then later, Zechariah, when his tongue is loose, says, Oh, the time has come! The horn of salvation is coming! And we thank you for the salvation we have from our sin and wickedness. May we turn to you. Oh, but Lord, there's more. These royal passages speak not only of your first coming, but your second coming. We long for the day when this is done, when our bodies of decay are done with, and we are face to face with the Almighty God. We long for that day. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. But until that day, we will trust in You and we will turn to You in all things. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand as we conclude singing these two songs?